Can't get enough of you. I am convinced that so many of the problems of our life, whether self-inflicted or um, from someone else, could be made so much better if we had more of Jesus in our life. And so today we're going to talk about that. I hope that as we review the events of Holy Week, you'll realize why you need and why you can't have more of Jesus in your life. Uh, before we do that, a couple things. We're going to give back to God. That's what these buckets are for. And, uh, and it's for us as a church family to say, God, thank you for all that you've given us. And if you're a guest, don't worry about those. And uh, also, I just want to say that it always has been a classy, uh, classy family until... My first son was born. Anyway, so I just want to get that out of the way to clarify that. Okay, good. So, you all right? You good? Good. All right. So I want to paint a picture for you as we're kind of finishing up giving back to God. I want to paint a picture for you that I, I hope um, kind of launches us into some thoughts about Holy Week. Because we're entering into Holy Week, the week between Palm Sunday when Christ entered into Jerusalem and, uh, and when uh, he uh, was resurrected from the dead, uh, this is Holy Week. And it is the most important week in the Christian calendar. And uh, it is a week in which we are encouraged to um, reflect, to uh, self-inspect, and to celebrate um, all that has happened. And I want to hopefully give us a little deeper um, kind of meaning to all that and, and foundation for that. Uh, so... The, the scene I want to set is, Connie and I have led a couple of trips along with our former teaching pastor, George Wood and his wife, and our Jewish guide, which is required by the, the state of Israel. Um, uh, we've led a couple of trips to the Holy Land, and to Israel, and, uh, and there is an interesting thing that happens on each of the trips, and, and, it, and it always gives me uh, pause to think about something. And uh, what happens is our Jewish guide, who I've had long conversations, she's been, she's been exposed to lots of Christians, and doesn't believe that Jesus was who we believe he was and who he said he was. She believes that he was a good teacher, a good rabbi, and that a guy named Paul uh, messed the whole thing up uh, later. And so, uh, and so we've had long extended conversations about that. Uh, but there is this interesting point in the tour um, and when we finally arrive from Galilee back to Jerusalem, and we spend two or three days in, in that area, and she leads us to uh, the top of the Mount of Olives, in which she gets us all out of the bus and makes some political statements. But she also points out that if you go this way, you go down to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, across the valley to the walled city. If you go this way, you go into the wilderness. And so with its geography in mind, and it's not this far down, it's not miles, it's less than, I, I want to say it's less than a mile, um, down to the Garden of Gethsemane at the bottom, and, and this side is just wilderness, it's really desert, they call it, in, in scriptural terms to be considered wilderness. And so later, we have, the, we have this view in mind, and later she makes this interesting statement that as she is pointing out before George kind of teaches us from the Bible about the context of this place, she says, as you can see, a while ago, we were up on the top of the Mount of Olives, the wilderness just on the other side, and you can see where we're sitting. The walled city is just across the valley here, uh, a very short distance, a quarter of a mile, and that's where Jesus was crucified. And she said, as you can tell, he could easily, as many zealots or revolutionaries before him did, he could have escaped. Now, that's an interesting statement coming from a person who is Jewish. 
It's a powerful statement for those of us who are Christian. I wonder what she's thinking. If he was a good teacher, why would he allow himself to be taken? Because you know that he knew what was going to happen. So the question then is, why did Jesus not escape? A, he didn't have to come to Jerusalem. He could have stayed up north in Galilee and never been taken by the religious rulers and never been turned over uh, to the Romans to be crucified. He didn't have to do that. And beyond that, he could have escaped at the last minute back into the wilderness. I just want to say at the beginning, God is good. And I know that God is good because Jesus came. He came to earth. We celebrate that at Christmas. But he came to Jerusalem, and we celebrate that on Good Friday and again on Easter. God is good because Jesus came. Why? I want to read through the story for you, and I want to point out a few things, and then I want to talk about what this tells us about God and what it can tell us about us and how we're to live in light of that. So if you want to follow along, it's in Luke 19, the version I'm going to look at today. The Gospels uh, all contain uh, this um, same information uh, with slight variances, um, some additions in some places. So I I like what you did there in the background, palm leaves. Good job. Um, So after Jesus has said this, he told this incredible parable uh, in the in the section just previous. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he willfully went to Jerusalem. That's a critical issue. Uh, as he approached Bethpage, a Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. By the way, this is fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that he will come riding on a colt. By the way, this is great symbolism. I'll talk about that in a moment. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Um, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? So by the way, this is just, just an aside. The owner asking why they're untying the colt tells you that Jesus knew this, not having prearranged it, Right? If you had prearranged this, the owner would know why they're untying the cold. Jesus knew this, okay? Uh, just a little indication is, is supernatural knowledge. Uh, they replied, the Lord needs it. Go on. Uh, they brought it to Jesus through their coats, uh, their cloaks on the cult. Like a cloak is like, a, like an outer coat kind of thing. And put Jesus on it. Now, this is important because in, uh, in the ancient world, uh, or even in the modern world, there are victory parades. So the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, I'm sure I just crucified that in, in, sorry for the pun, in uh, French. But anyway, uh, the the pattern was that um, conquering military war heroes, leaders, would march back to their home city um, with the the captives and the spoils behind them, and they would march in victory. And this is a picture of that, except for there are some very distinct differences. Jesus was not a military leader, did not intend to be a military leader. All of the people didn't know that or didn't understand that. They thought maybe he was going to come overthrow the Romans. But these parades happened after the battle, not before. And the leader would always be riding a, a, a war horse, a great, beautiful stallion, great, powerful, and it was majestic. And here comes Jesus on a donkey, <laughs> It's just like, but it's interesting because if you read in in the Old Testament prediction of Zechariah, you will find that that he did that as a juxtaposition to what worldly power is about. So a geopolitical leader might come and bring a change in in the government. Um, that would last even like the Romans a thousand years or more, but eventually it would be gone. It would be corrupt. It would, it would decay. 
Jesus came to bring something else, which you find in this passage and in the passage in the Old Testament. He came to bring a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom of peace that would last forever. So let's go on. In verse 36, uh, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, which also is a part of that same picture. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now, there's an interesting thing here. Go back one. Sorry. Uh, uh, the disciples. Began, so there's an interesting study here. I'm not going to do it today, but there's an interesting study here. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So there are people coming with him. There are people coming out to meet him. And these people are coming, having heard about Jesus. These people are coming, having seen what Jesus did. One of the previous miracles he just did was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so his disciples are coming, it says in this, his disciples. So they weren't all strangers. They weren't all people hoping for, for some, some kind of overthrow. There were some disciples that may have understood somewhat of what he was about, but we know by the, even the closest disciples' reaction during the trial, they didn't fully get what he was doing, okay? And so, and then we go on. Uh, blessed is the king comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That last phrase sounds a lot like what we sang at Christmas because it's the same words from the same source, okay? Some of them. Uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples because they were proclaiming him to be king. They're thinking, dude, you're going to get the Romans mad at us or we're going to lose our power and position as religious leaders. You're messing up the whole apple cart here. Tell them to knock it off. And here's what Jesus says. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He goes on. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is an important phrase here, because this tells us why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. That he wept over the city. We'll come back to that in a moment. I just want you to take note of that. Um, go on. Um, and he said, if you, talking to the, the Jewish people, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, there's that word peace that is predicted in the Old Testament. That's why he came on a donkey. He came to bring a different kind of government, a government of peace, a spiritual government that lasts forever, would, would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, you don't even understand why I'm coming. Go on. Uh, the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. So he's warning them that their lack of belief in God and God's plan, which was him, um, was going to cause them pain. Go ahead. Verse 45, oh, they will dash you, oh, I'm sorry, did I miss that? Go back to 44, I'll read it real quick. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God. This last phrase is an important one. You do not recognize the time of God's coming to you or your moment of, it could, a paraphrase could be your moment of deliverance. Your moment of God working in your life. It's kind of a, a phrase there. Then, 45, sorry. Uh, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. And it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So we have this picture of Jesus coming in. The people are excited. They're singing. They're shouting. They're welcoming him. And, and it's an interesting picture that I have struggled with. So I, I think I have done probably 37 Palm Sundays. Spoken, 37 Palm Sundays, maybe more. Um, at my age, you can't remember. Um, and one of the interesting things every year that I struggle with is what were they celebrating and should I celebrate the fact that they were celebrating? Because most of the people were either celebrating this guy who had done miracles and I don't know what else they were celebrating. Some were celebrating they thought he was going to overthrow the Romans and establish a geopolitical kingdom. And should I join in the celebration, even though they didn't understand what we understand now, why he was doing it? 
What should I understand about that? And so I want to suggest to you today something that I've come to. I want to celebrate Jesus because of what I know. And I will not pass judgment on them because I'm, I'm not in their shoes necessarily, but I will identify with them on one level. Here's what I know. I need more of Jesus because Jesus came to Jerusalem to deliver. This came clear to me. Uh, in, I was reading a book by a young author. I just began the book. I haven't even read the whole book yet. And he begins the book, and his, name, his last name is Wax, and I can't remember, Trevin or something like that. And he begins the book with the story of his father-in-law who, was, uh, who lived in communist Romania. And under communism, he became a communist. And he joined the Communist Party because that's how you get ahead. He not only became a communist, he excelled at communism and was recruited to be a spy on those people called Christians who were all but outlawed. And all religion was the opiate of the people for weak people who couldn't, uh, who couldn't benefit society by contributing and therefore were looked, not only looked down upon, they were excluded from all aspects of society that they could be. And so they recruited him to be a spy and they sent him to a local church to spy, uh, to find out who was there, take note who was there, so they could be excluded and even persecuted and even jailed, uh, depending on the level of their, their activity and their faith. And so he went to spy, to take notes, and he found himself in the most unusual situation where the speaker began to speak, and he began to listen, and what the speaker was saying actually made sense to him. And he found himself, at the end of the talk, the speaker said, if anyone would like to accept Jesus, which, by the way, also meant he knew, they knew, exclusion from any further advancement in society, probably persecution, possibly prison. If anyone would like to accept Jesus, what a deal, who could turn that down? Raise your hand. And he found himself with both hands in the air because what he heard was so compelling. Goes home, tells his wife, she said, you've ruined our life. This is terrible. We're going to suffer the rest of our lives. I will not become one of these religious people, one of these weak fanatics. And over a matter of weeks, he persisted, finally got her to go and hear the speaker. Same thing happened with her. She becomes a Christian. Um, and And the author tells about what that meant for their life and the challenges they faced. But what's interesting is how the father in law and this author kind of break down what happened. And I think it is, it is um, parallel to what happened with the people at, at the triumphal entry and maybe to us. Here's what they said. He says, I joined communism because I had a longing. We all have a longing. We, we have a need. And it's for this. It's for a better story. A better story than we're living right now. We have a need. And he said, I thought communism, the promises of communism would be that the rich wouldn't keep getting richer while the poor suffered more and more, but that we would all be provided for and society would be fair and it would be equal. By the time he came to that church service, he realized that that was not true, that it was a lie, that it would just be different rich people suppressing the other people and, 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 and enslaving the rest of the people. But he thought that communism was a better story. What's interesting is he said when he sat in that service hearing the gospel, he realized what he thought was a better story, and he'd already begun to suspect this, was a lie. And in contrast to the truth of Jesus Christ, the lie became more and more apparent because the story of Jesus is the better story, and it's not a false story, and it's not made up, and it's not revisionist history. It is true. It is the better story. And he said in that moment, I saw my life could be different my life here and now, and my life to come in heaven. And it's a better story. 
Here, I think, is what is common to all of us. All of us have a longing for a better story. Now, if you've invited someone to Easter, I want to I encourage you with this. They may or may not admit it or even realize it, but they're in search of a better story if they don't know Jesus. If you leverage your relationship, risk to ask a non-believer to come with you to service, be comforted by the fact that they are in search of a better story. Everyone is in search of a better story. And there's only one true better story. Now, see, in this country, we generally aren't believing that communism is the better story. We've seen enough of that to know that that's not true. We believe consumerism is the better story. Makes more sense. It doesn't, but we somehow think it does. We somehow believe that, that more success, more stuff, more power, more status, somehow all of that is a better story. And, and yes, it's, it's nicer to live in a nice house and, you know, not in a, in, a, in a rundown house, but it's not the better story. It's only slightly better. It doesn't address the deepest needs, the ones that we really want to address. Now think about the people who run out to meet Jesus. Their version of a better story is one of two things. They have been told that if they could just overthrow the Romans, that that would be the better story for them individually and for their nation. The problem is we can look in their history and realize it wasn't. When they were a sovereign nation, they went through what is called cycles of apostasy. They weren't so much better off back then because they kept turning their back on God. When they turned their hearts toward God, it was a better story. When they turned their hearts away from God, it was not a better story. It wasn't sovereignty that decided that. So they thought that power... Having the power of a sovereign nation would be the better story. Or they had been taught by the religious leaders that keeping all the rules was the better story. If I could just keep all the rules, my life will be better. And that doesn't work either. Here's what is so powerful. We all have longings. We all want a better story. We've all bought into lies. If I could just have more money, more sex, more power, more status, whatever it is, We've all bought in how short-lived those lies are. When Jesus came, he brought us the true better story, the eternal better story that not only is better, it keeps getting better. The more you live in this story, he came to deliver us from the lies, from the false narratives, to bring us into the life and into the light of his love, the reconciliation with our creator and the plan that he has for our life. He came. That's why he went to Jerusalem. That's why he went to Jerusalem and not back to Galilee. That's why he didn't escape, but came forward even though it was going to cost him. He not only came to deliver us, and that is a powerful thing, because he has a better story for every one of us. He also came to Jerusalem to confront, and he confronts us today. It's so interesting because Christmas is so easy for everybody to celebrate. We have lots of people that come to church celebrate. They don't, they don't know who Jesus is, don't care. Everybody can celebrate a baby, right? Babies are very easy to celebrate. A little harder to celebrate Holy Week. Because whether you're like my Jewish friend who thought he was a good teacher or you're like some of my other friends who believe that Jesus was one of many religious leaders and all roads lead to the same place, Holy Week is a problem. Because here is Jesus. If he goes back, he's a good teacher, a role model. If he goes forward, he's going to die. He's going to be a martyr. Why would he choose to die unless there was something to die for? And here's the confrontation of Holy Week. We're a world of sinners, a world of people created by God to live in relationship with God, to live a certain kind of life, and we've all blown it. That's the part most of my friends don't want to admit. We've all blown it. And in God's divine justice system, there has to be a price paid for that. 
or justice is nothing. Justice is a joke. It doesn't exist. There has to be a price, and it's a price that none of us could pay. That's the confrontation of Holy Week because Holy Week talks about some pretty ugly stuff like beating and death on a cross and some very somber kinds of things. And we have to look at that. Either Jesus was the Savior who came to pay a price so that we could be forgiven, or he was nuts. He was crazy. Why would he choose to go to Jerusalem and die when he could have gone over the hill and been fine? He could have been a good teacher. He could have been a good role model. That's all he had to do, over the hill and out. But he chose to go to Jerusalem. He was either crazy, in which case we shouldn't listen to anything he says, or there's something we didn't know, and that is that we all need to be forgiven. See, he came to, to not only bring us forgiveness, but he came to confront us with why we need to be forgiven. So there's this interesting thing that happens. And, um, and it happened at the end of the passage I just read to you, where Jesus goes to the temple court. So this is really weird. There are a few things in the, in the last week of his life. Now, you would think, he knows it's the last week of his life. You would think that he would focus on those things that are really important, wouldn't you? And he did. And what was one of the things he did in the last week of his life? He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. What he does is he goes there and he's mad. What he sees makes him mad. By the way, anger is not always a sin. Most of your anger is a sin because it's selfish. And so is mine. But his was righteous anger. When you see some injustice, when you see little kids shot in a school or a child abused, that's righteous anger and it's appropriate. What he saw in the temple was righteous anger. And so he goes and he starts throwing people out. So what did he see? Keller talks about this. Tim Keller talks about this. It's very interesting. He saw, so here's the temple. The temple is, um, it, there, a section of the temple is for Gentiles. So you and I, most of us, could not go into certain parts of the temple because we're not Jewish. In the Old Testament, Jewish, God's chosen people, we could go into the court of the Gentiles. And he says, if you remember, I just read it a moment ago, that that was intended for prayer, for a place of prayer, but that it was being used as a marketplace. So here's the picture. Um, I've actually seen something very similar to this. Uh, and, and, and if you're from India, please understand that I'm not making fun of your country in any way. And you may not believe what I'm about to tell you, but I've seen it and I can take you there and show it to you. There is a temple in Northeast India in which um, it's a 12th century temple. And in this temple, as you approach it, there are all kinds of stalls and little businesses around the outside and uh, outside of the main part of it. And you can stop at one of these stalls. You have to take your shoes off and they'll store your shoes for a few few pennies. Uh, they'll store your shoes, which is just, the, it's an intimidating thing to take your shoes off in this context. You understand why in a moment. And you take your shoes off, you put it there, and then they will sell you something that you can leave. It could be fruit. It could be some other stuff. And you could leave at the shrine in the center of this very sweaty, smelly 12th century temple. But outside this main part, there is, and I've seen it, animal sacrifice. And so you can also buy an animal to sacrifice to these particular gods. All right? So that's the scene. So now imagine in the Old Testament, the part of their worship was animal sacrifice to remind humans of the penalty for having broken uh, God's intention for you. And so imagine that this place that was intended for prayer is a place where pilgrims are coming from all over. They can change their local currency from where they came from to currency, their currency for local currency, where they could buy a, a pigeon or something to sacrifice. There are some estimates that during Passover, there was as many as 255,000 lambs sacrificed. Now think about that. That's messy. So think about, this. so it's crazy. It's just going, think about like the board of trade, but with actual animals. Okay. It's just craziness. 
But here is, and, and Tim Keller points this out so well, here is what Jesus was, I grew up hearing this passage thinking, oh, you should never sell anything in church. Point of the story is don't sell things in church. So we couldn't even, a youth group couldn't even sell brownies at our church because you know, Jesus, what was the point? The point was they had forgotten who they were. He came to confront their loss of purpose or their loss of mission. These were Jews. These were God's chosen people. What was this place? This place was the court of the Gentiles where the one place where non-Jews could come and hopefully through prayer experience the true God. And they had forgotten that's who they were and that's what this place was for. And they began to think it was about them and they had believed a lie that if I could sell enough lambs during Passover, my life's going to be better the better story. And he came and said, no, you guys are missing the point. This is supposed to be a place of prayer, of connection with God. There are all these people who are not Jews, who don't have the same access to God, who are supposed to be here, able to worship God, and you guys are missing the point. You've lost your mission and your purpose. One of the things that during Holy Week can happen to us is we can stop and understand whether or not we're on mission. Am I living the mission, the purpose that God has for me? If I've bought into one of the lies that something else is going to give me a better life, I'm not living according to the purpose God created me for. When I was a teenager and I was running away from God, you know what brought me back? It wasn't the guilt of all the wrongdoing because I could find ways to get rid of that for a few hours. It was this haunting sense that I was created for something more that God had made me. I didn't know what gifts and abilities God had given me, but I knew there was some reason I was on this earth, and it wasn't what I was doing. (laughs) It wasn't how I was using my energies. It wasn't what I was pursuing. I was pursuing a lie, and I knew it was empty, and that's what brought me back. If you are living for any other mission than what God created you for, it's empty, and it's a lie, and he wants to bring you back. So when I was... um, a kid, they had this, this, this thing. It's called recommitment. And you would come and you realize you've been here in your life for some other reason. And you recommit yourself to God's plan for your life because of what Christ did for you. My hope is that this Easter season, one of the things that we might be confronted with is whether we need to make a recommitment or not. Recommit to living for His plan for our lives and not some other lie that we've bought into some other vision we've self-generated. Jesus also came to um, confront issues of the heart, specifically hypocrisy. So in Luke 20, 45, there's this interesting scene. This is one of the things he does during his last week. There's this interesting thing in which he says, while all the people were listening, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, now here's the deal. So like, He's talking to, like, these are his disciples. But all the religious leaders are right there. They're right there, okay? And so he said, uh, while the people were listening, those guys are listening, he says to you guys, all right? So the scene is he's not really talking to his disciples. He's talking to them, okay? He's talking to them so they can hear. So in, the, in verse 46, he says this. Um, Beware of the teachers of the law. Uh, they like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So here he is talking to disciples. These men. Why is he doing it? Because he's confronting them. He's warning them, but he's confronting them. 
God hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. So does everybody watching us, by the way, as Christians. Here's the problem. Every one of us are hypocrites. None of us are living up to the standards that we know God wants of us. Here is where it really becomes a problem, is when it's not a problem anymore. When we begin to accept that, oh, God's okay with that little dalliance over there. God's okay with that little fudging on the truth over there. God, no, God's not okay with that. See, Christ is about to die for all of that, and he doesn't want you to take it lightly because he's not taking it lightly. And so one of the things that we can do during Holy Week is to look at our lives, look in the mirror, self-examine and say, Lord, if there is any wicked way in me, if there is anything in me that's displeasing you, and there is for all of us, Lord, don't let it be okay with me. I repent of it. I am sorry that I am letting that stay in my life. And repent of that thing. Maybe you're carrying bitterness. Maybe you're, you're letting some addiction go, pornography or, or, or a substance abuse. You know, look at that thing and own it and say, no, this is Christ died so that I wouldn't have to carry this around. So I wouldn't be entangled by this. Maybe you're living some kind of double life or something. Deal with it. This is a great week to deal with it. That's why he came. He came to deliver us. He came to confront us so he could deliver us. He also came to confront false spirituality. That was the problem with the religious leaders. They had all the religious systems down and all the rules figured out, but they had no relationship with God. In Matthew 22, 29, he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. They knew the rules. They just didn't know God and they didn't trust him. He came to deliver us. He came to set us free. He came to forgive us. Some of us need deliverance, and we need God's power. Those things I mentioned a while ago, I didn't say those so you feel condemned or feel guilt. I mentioned those so that you could say to God, God, I can't overcome this addiction by myself. I can't seem to get past this bitterness by myself. I can't find the way forward. God, I need your power. And Scripture says it's not just any power. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that we will celebrate next Sunday. That same power is available to us to resurrect us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to help us. Move beyond whatever it is that entangles us. This is a serious week, but it's a victorious week. It's a powerful week. We dare not take it lightly. He came to do so much for us. So let's go back to our first scene. We're sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Escape just over the hill. The cross right there. Who couldn't believe in a God who had chose, choose not to escape, not to run away, but chose to move toward the cross for the people that he loved to be redeemed, for the people that he loved to be forgiven, for the people that he loved to live a different story, a story that is powerful, that is victorious, that is eternal. Who would not trust a God like that? Because that kind of God is a truly good God. And this week, my prayer is that we celebrate a good God, the good God, and that it changes us, and it changes our understanding, and it changes our behavior, and it changes our attitude, and it changes our celebration next week, because all week we've been thinking about a good God and what that means to us. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. It is not just what you do, even though you are good to us, it is who you are. You are a good God. 
You're not good sometimes and occasionally. You are good all the time, everywhere. You are good. Lord, it was your goodness that led you to come here. It was your goodness that caused you to not escape, but to go to the cross so that we could be forgiven and we could be freed and we could live a different story, a better story, the best story. So today, Lord God, I thank you for being good. Let your goodness be reflected in my attitude. Let your goodness be reflected in my gratitude. Lord, let your goodness be reflected in everything that I do. And Lord, as we contemplate all that you did for us this week, let us come together next weekend with deep joy, with heartfelt gratitude, and with great celebration. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.